Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. This month we have an absolutely packed episode with Paul Comfort, the industry's, well, goodwill ambassador from Odaxo. He's been speaking to people up and down the country and up and down the entire world in transit, from CEOs to supervisors and others, and in this episode, getting loads of practical examples of things we can bring to our own transit agencies. I love especially some of his stories from his Equity and Transit book, which we go through with real examples of improving inclusion and representation, as well as how to get people out of incarceration into real jobs and ways to really improve services for communities which have been overlooked and underserved. This is all adding to how we get better transit. Without further ado, let's speak to Paul. Now, let's get talking. With us this week, we have one of the uh, royalty of podcast and transit TV circuit, Paul Comfort. Thank you so much for coming on with us this month. It's a real honor for me. I'm sort of starstruck and wondering how exactly to interview the interviewer after you've uh, met so many people. Give us a, a quick intro as a guest on the show to your career, getting you now to Senior Vice President at Madaxo. Well, thanks, Ben. And what a kind and warm introduction. It's an honor for me to be with you on your podcast. I think very highly of you and your company, as, a, as we mentioned in the green room. I know that our companies have partnered together many times in the past, so it's great to be a partner with you today on your podcast. We recently, on my podcast, Transit Unplugged, just passed 250 episodes. So I'm real excited about that. You know, With you know hundreds of thousands of downloads, we're now heard in 130 countries around the world. I get messages uh, every week from people. The most interesting things that people tell me from around the world that are listening to the show, you know, usually people reach out to me through uh, LinkedIn. I'm the king of LinkedIn. I've got like 25,000 connections, which is pretty big for our industry. I've curated that for many, many years. And I spend, you know, a lot of time. It's funny, like I work for a software company and I remember my boss, Ted, the guy that one of the guys that hired me here six years ago said, Paul, I wake up every day thinking about software. You wake up every day thinking about transit. I said, exactly, that's exactly right. So I am the transit evangelist. You and I, I think share that title evangelist, but I'm a transit evangelist for our companies and kind of the spokesperson for Medaxo, and particularly I work for Medaxo Americas and the goodwill ambassador to the industry. When I got hired by Trapeze six years ago, Ben, uh, the guy that hired me said, uh, you know, we want to bring you on board. I just left being CEO of MTA in Baltimore, one of the top 12 transit systems in America. We had, you know, 5,000 employees and contractors. We had all six modes of active public mobility. We had put into place the Baltimore Link program and won lots of awards. And after 30 years in the industry, I decided to go back into the private sector. He said, you know, we we want to bring you on board. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to write. I want to speak. I want to travel. And I want to help my fellow CEOs improve their transit systems. Those are the four things I wanted to do. And that's what I do today. This company has integrity and they have allowed me to continue to do what I asked to do right from the beginning, continue to support it relentlessly. I mean, now, you know, we're global, you know, we're not just in uh, America. So that's what I do. There's my introduction. <laughs> I write, travel, and I help CEOs improve their transit systems, hopefully. Well, it's, it's, it's great to see you speaking to so many of the senior leaders and CEOs. It's a punishing schedule. I mean, uh, Transit Unplugged TV is now what, every month in a different city. And right. it's great to see the travelogue of kind of photos and videos from all these wonderful locations. It must take you on the road like a lot. Ask my wife. She just told me that last night, I've got PTSD from you being gone so much lately. 
So we just spent a week in, you know, Vancouver and Banff and filmed three episodes of Transit Unplugged TV out there. One with Kevin Quinn and his team at TransLink. Kevin used to be the planning director at MTA when I was CEO and so happy for him that after succeeding me as CEO there, now is leading really one of North America's and the world's leading transit systems in Vancouver, Canada. So we spent a day with him and his team. And then we spent a day with Rocky Mountaineer, the excursion train company, and, and showed how, you know, rail can be done really well. And so the people were willing to pay thousands of dollars to ride your train. And and what are the lessons we can learn in commuter rail and heavy rail from an excursion train? That'll be an episode. And then we spent some time in Banff, which is a great national park in Canada and interviewed their CEO of their transit system for a tourist town wrote all kinds of modes and had a lot of fun. So yeah, it is a lot. So basically what I'm doing now, I'm producing a lot of products. So I'll, let's walk through what the product we're producing. We do a weekly podcast called Transit Unplugged. It's on most platforms. One week is called In-Depth, Ben, and that's when I interview almost exclusively CEOs of transit systems, the top dog, as they say, you know, from around the world. And that's how I got started and we keep that. But then every other week now, we do uh, Transit Unplugged News and Views, where we give some news, hot news of the industry, you know, maybe it's the latest and greatest things happening with hydrogen fuel or with new funding in Canada or America or whatever. And then we do a shorter interview, a newsmaker interview with someone making news in the industry doesn't have to be a CEO, strictly public transportation. And now we've added a third component. We were doing the future of public transportation kind of based on my book, but this year we're going leadership development. So like for instance, on the podcast that's going live today, I've got a guy in there, Jim Herring, who is the chief information officer of MV Transportation. And he's talking about three great leadership books that he read and has used in leadership. And also we spoke specifically to younger supervisors in their first supervisory job, what should you do in your first supervisory job? And, you know, the talk about so many people are promoted because they're good at what they do, but they never get the people leadership training after that. They're good at managing things, right? Like a mechanic might be a good wrench turner, as they say, and then he gets put in charge of the wrench turners, but nobody teaches him, oh, it's not there to get results yourself. Your job is to get results from other people. And here's the best way to do that. So that's a new component of the show. I'm delighted to hear that coming into the show because I've just read your uh, Conversations on Equity, Inclusion and Transit book. Yes. And this reads like a sort of must read for leadership level people in the transit industry, but right down, as you say, to the supervisory level. And yes, we have to look at the equity issues for riders, but the inclusion and delivering really for all the different classes of riderships requires representation in the senior and executive roles at the industry, where that's where the planning, that's where the designs, that's where the choice of technology, that's where all of the rollout is moderated and controlled and and envisioned by whoever is sat around the table. And you can't just put out a job ad for a senior role and say, you know, I'm not getting enough applications from people with the right experience at this level, unless you're feeding that, unless you're creating that. But the book specifically, I'd love to hear your take as the author. And I know the book is very much in the words of the people who have been interviewed, which really stands out very genuinely from people on the ground floor. What are some of the stories that really touched you and really grabbed you when you were doing those interviews in the first place? The book really came out of the podcast 
and the television show as I'm interviewing these CEOs around the world, because that's what the podcast is, we said. And then we started this month. Now that we could travel after the pandemic, we thought we would do, you know, Anthony Bourdain style, dive into a city's food, culture and transit instead of interviewing chefs, although we are having some chefs on now. Uh, we're also interviewing uh, the CEOs of transit agencies. And then I was talking to them and I realized really during the pandemic, Ben, when ridership was decimated, it gave public transit agencies an inflection point, a moment to reflect and to say, what is it we're really about? Because if it's only about taking people to the big, tall buildings in the downtowns of our shiny cities, then we're a failure right now because we're not doing that. But we serve another purpose. And the pandemic showed us what that purpose was, providing transportation and mobility to essential workers that actually, you know, the wheels and the bus that go round and round are also the wheels that make our economy turn. Because the people that are actually, you know, grinding out on the front lines of our economy are the ones that are using public transit, even when TFL and, and WMATA and all these agencies told people, don't ride public transit unless you're an essential worker. Most of the bus transportation and above ground transportation was still at about 50%. Although the commuter rail and commuter bus, which were suburbs going into their white collar jobs in, in the cities dropped dramatically, usually over 90%. So in talking to all these CEOs about that moment, it came to me that really what came out of that was a wonderful thing. A renaissance in a way for public transportation for what our purpose is. You know, as Simon Sinek says, what's your why? Well, the why has traditionally just been more riders, more riders, more riders. But the pandemic said, wait a minute, no, we can do more than that. We can actually be a vehicle, pun intended, to promote equity and inclusion in our communities and in our agencies. And it also was a moment of reflection where public transit agencies said, you know what else we're about? We're about providing environmental stewardship. We've always been the cleaner mode of transport, right? One bus takes scores of cars off the road, but now we can even do more with zero emission vehicles and things like that. And so that's what came out of the pandemic, a closer connection with our customer. So I call that engagement. Secondly, the environment. And thirdly, equity. Those are the three E's, I think, that came out of the pandemic. So let's talk about the equity part. I felt like there are so many leaders doing so many great things when it came to equity inclusion. I should highlight that. And there wasn't anybody doing that in a book form. We'd done it speeches, magazine articles, conferences, but no one had wrangled together 20 or so top leaders and said, tell me what you're doing right now to improve equity and inclusion in your organization and in your city. So that's what the book's about, conversations on equity and inclusion in public transportation. My wife suggested the conversations part. I was just going to call it equity and inclusion. She said, well, really, it's conversations though, right? You're talking to people because it does use an interesting literary effect, which is it's not just me reporting on what they're saying. That's what the book's about. And it is about improving equity in our communities, right? Like Julie Tim, who now heads up Sound Transit in Seattle, but was at GRTC in Richmond. One of my best friends in the industry told me, Paul, she said, I realized that, you know, it's a simple thing, but this is what we're talking about. Practical, right? I want it practical. All of our bus shelters are mostly in the downtown of Richmond for the commuters. Everybody else gets what I call a stick in the mud, right? A pole with a sign that says bus stop. So in communities of color and in low income communities where the elderly live, they get a stick and maybe a bench, but never hardly a shelter where they could be out of the rain. And actually, they're the ones probably waiting in the rain longer than anyone because they're on routes that have longer headways out in the community. Mm. You know, where downtown, you may have a 10 minute, 15 minute headway. I mean, I loved in the book also picking up that it's not just drawing the line around we're the bus people, we do the bus stuff, is recognizing that the infrastructure around it, the lack of sidewalk yeah. to the bus stop, 
means that the provision of the bus stop is not an effective service to deliver mobility to anyone. There's, there's no dignity in being dropped where there's no safety to get anywhere. And we're, we're seeing people riding to the, I forget which chapter it was, riding to the end of the route and coming back again to safely get across the road outside because there's no way across the freeway if you don't have a car. It literally, the car-centric development has gone so far Never mind being a transit advocate, someone who, for environmental reasons, might want to use public transit more because it's a better choice. There are areas that it's not car optional. It's, it's very, very hard to live without a car because so much of the infrastructure and shopping and other facilities, even within half a mile of each other, are not reachable by foot without some way of doing it. So seeing transit agencies lean in and, and get involved in sanitation, get involved in the security side, but get involved in infrastructure around pavements, sidewalks, and recognizing that as an essential part of enabling mobility, enabling independence is so key. I think people have to get out of their silos a bit, and that, that comes out from the book as well. It's a transit desert becomes an opportunity desert. Your access to everything is ruined. Yeah, that's why the one chapter I wrote in the book was on microtransit, Ben, because I really believe in the power of on-demand. You know, I've run services. I was head of paratransit for Washington Metro for five years through MV, and I've seen the power of individualized public transportation, kind of like what we call paratransit here in the U.S., but expanded beyond people with disabilities, but expanded to everyone, has really made a difference in people's lives in areas where there's not fixed route bus service. So for instance, MJ Maynard in Vegas told me, Paul, I'm going to use some of this money coming in from the feds to try to expand a pilot program into a transit desert with microtransit. Places where there's not enough justification for a 40-foot bus, but there's still people that need public mobility who want to have the option to use transit. So I really believe that's a great if you layer over your service, you know, many people are now doing a, a reboot of their traditional fixed route bus networks because travel patterns have changed post-COVID, right? We're in a three-day city and all those kind of things. So we don't need as much service on Mondays and Fridays. So if you layer in microtransit, it really does help make sure no one is disenfranchised. I fully agree. And it's it's this correct mode for the type of journey. I really love some of the agencies who've looked at subsidizing on demand. And, you know, not always doing on-demand microtransit with public sector vehicles, but saying, you know, right. we can subsidize some of the big publicly known ride hail and, and private taxi yeah, services. Uber, Lyft, taxis, yeah, all they, they Yeah, they can deliver even paratransit to ambulatory, you know, people That's without right. the need for a wheelchair access or anything else. Right. It's much cheaper to operate that. But especially late at night, one bus every two hours, which may or may not be canceled, stretching you to four hours is not a safe yeah. service. <laughs> Right. The amount of money it would cost you to subsidize a load of on-demand ride hail services is it, tiny in comparison and raises the service level so much. Some agencies, you know, it's not that you can just say, I'm going to get a cab anywhere I want to go. It's they're subsidized if they drop you off on one of the main artery right. routes, on the high-density trunk lines. That's where your fixed route service is. That's where your BRT is. That's right. where your commuter rail is. And you then spread that to those those areas of lower density where it wouldn't make sense to do it. And that, when it comes to AVs, autonomous vehicles, is the thing I'm most excited about. It's not Google cars driving around the center of Manhattan. I think that is insanely bad. And we need to use road pricing or something else to, to prevent deadheading robo-taxis 
taking away over the city centers, but using robo taxis to pick people up in lower density areas and then deliver them to the BRT, deliver them to the light rail ingress points and bring them in and out. That's the good future that technology is going to bring us. But uh, let's move on to some of the other stories from equity and inclusion in transit. We've uh, spoken earlier about trying to lift people up inside the agency staff. I particularly liked, I think it was uh, the CEO of Indigo talking about programs to get people that have been incarcerated into the workforce. This is people who've been incarcerated for non-violent offenses and giving them some training while they're they're still in a facility and then leading them into employment as they get released to give them a path and not just have employers draw the line under them and give people no way forward when they get out. And I I just, I so love that 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 program. There's a similar success story in the United Kingdom from a, a locksmith and shoe repair company who deliberately targets rehabilitation in that way and then ends up with an incredibly loyal and passionate active workforce on it. But uh, what are the other kind of really lovely ideas and stories that you picked up out of the interviews, which are practical and, and usable? That's a great one. I did the same thing in Baltimore. We had a program where basically, you know, you would teach auto mechanics in the facility and then they come out and you train them and, and they hopefully can. Everybody needs mechanics right now. So it's a win-win, right? It's so hard to get employees, young people, especially interested in auto mechanics, although it's becoming with zero emission vehicles, even a more technical and less kind of wrench driven using that analogy again, you're more like an IT person working in shops these days than anything. But yeah, there's a ton of stories, right? We also interviewed some folks from private companies like Jacobs and others talking about internal programs they have to promote from within and to make sure that everyone gets access to the C-suite and you're not blocked out because of your gender or your color or your background. One really interesting story was our interview with an agency head in Melbourne, Australia, where she talked about how they used their transportation service to help war refugees from Bosnia and other places who came to Australia and did not have really a way to get a job. And they reached out to their community and now they are customer service people and all kinds of great, interesting jobs, opportunities that folks who kind of came to a country, you know, with the war right behind them, getting out just in time, you know, or Somalia or other places. I think that's something we haven't really thought about as much in the U.S., but I thought that story from Australia was very interesting. And then, you know, things like starting up daycare centers, transit agencies having daycare in their facilities so that moms who traditionally are the caregivers for children can bring their child right to work, leave at work, run and do a shift and then come back. I think that's awesome. Or even medical facilities on site so that you can get your, not just your pre-employment physical, but you've got a nurse or a doctor coming in three times a week or every day for your thousand employees of your agency to get medical care. These are extra steps to make sure that people can work up, they can maybe work a double that way if you need them to. So it's again, win-win for transit agencies to really try to provide more equitable services for their employees. That's absolutely fantastic. I really love the crash at work. I grew up briefly in Scandinavia and Norway and Holland and Crash at work is a lot more normal, even when I was young out there for high complexity employers. Brilliant. Flipping back to the ridership, other than, you know, making sure we've got sidewalks and and bus stations, can you just pick out one really good equity change for ridership and opportunities for ridership that you picked out? I think it would be adding frequency to routes that traditionally have had one hour headways. There are so many 
public transit agencies in the U.S. and other places moving to try to get to like down in New Orleans, where they moved a lot of their 60-minute headway routes to 30-minute headway routes. They invested. Sometimes you got to build it before they come, right? So they're thinking, well, you know, we don't have enough ridership to justify going to 30-minute headways. Well, maybe because it doesn't work for people to only get a ride at 404, 504, 604, 704, 804 all day long. Maybe if you did one in a 30-minute interval or even a 20-minute interval, you may get more riders because now it actually works for them. If you never provide it, you'll never know. So at least pilot it and test it for six months. So that's what a lot of transit agencies did. New Orleans was an example of that, where they took a look at all their routes and, and analyzed and said, we're not going to have any more 60-minute headways where we can help not have it. We're going to So simple things like that, providing what I call access to all of life's opportunities, which is the goal for me of public transportation. So that's a big one. It's a simple one. It requires a little bit extra investment, right? Because running that bus means you have to have more employees, more vehicles, et cetera. But making that an investment is a key element of adding equity inclusion to your community. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. There's a minimum viable frequency. Yeah, that's good. I like that term. Yeah. Below that, if you even miss that bus, that's the penalty to you is huge. If that bus, for whatever reason, has skipped your stop or is not in service, the penalty to you for missing a low-frequency bus of waiting in the rain for two hours, dangerously, it's probably not in a nice place, that kills your day. You can't pick up kids. You can't get home. You can't get to work on time. You can get fired. It's not a service. I agree with you. Either run three times an hour or put in subsidized ride hail or do something else. But but once an hour, once every two hours is not a service. You know, not everybody is retired and can tolerate that amount of wasted time. That's right. And it shows you what our priority has been in the past. When I got this job as CEO of Baltimore 2015, I told all my senior staff at one of the very first meetings, I don't care about ridership. That's the one thing we don't control. And yet we're making that our number one KPI, key performance indicator. I think it's worshiping at a false idol to make it a religious thing, you know, and we need to tear down these altars to ridership. I said it back then, you know, almost 10 years ago, because it just never made sense to me. Now we build safe, efficient, reliable transit with world-class customer service. If we build it, they will come. Let's not focus on increased ridership for just commuters as the main thing we care about. And when you do that, Then you get what you and I just talked about. Well, we only have limited resources, so we need to put them where we measure our success. We measure our success as more riders. We're going to get that through commuters. So you know what? The folks that live out in the suburbs or in the country, we get it. We got to throw them a bone. So we'll give them once an hour bus service. You may as well not have bothered. Yeah, exactly. More than half of ridership of buses are women, and they don't tend to the in, in the morning, out in the evening, a return journey, nine till five, that's not the journeys they do. They're multi-point journeys. They vary in time, shifts vary in time. What the MBTA's commuter rail, it only runs one way in the morning and then back in the evening. That's not a real service for anyone other than white-collar workers. And they wonder why the, the ridership is down to almost nothing. Now, it's a leisure service heavily now on the weekend, but leisure riders need to go in and out at different times a day. You know, a tidal flow is not what these commuter rail services are going to be about anymore. They're going to have to come to continuous service. Um, Speaking of KPIs, though, one of the things we really love to do at Masabi is to make sure we're putting our offices in cities, which are all about public transit and having employees who will love public transit. And that's great. And we all use it. And, And then occasionally we work with transit agencies where senior staff don't use public transit. 
Initially in the United Kingdom, when we were working on ticketing, we discovered that many senior staff never bought tickets. So their understanding of the lived reality of the rider was empty because they all had staff passes and therefore didn't have to chew through the lines of the ticket machines every day. But then to find that there were people who were taking the decisions on public transit did not ride public transit was a bit of a surprise to us. So we do questionnaires and then feedback to people on how many use public transit. I know you've sort of beat the drum on it, but should it be a a KPI or a, a, a reportable internal goal that any senior staff should be using public transit, their own public transit in some way, even if it's just to do a ride along and chat to people, they should, what we say, eat your own dog food. You know, if you don't do that, (laughs) you are basing your decisions on whatever's in the report and whatever's in your imagination that you've created and conjured as the the lived reality of a, a person trying to achieve something on public transit, get to this point on this time. No, it's not a TV program, but your challenge is go to this restaurant at this time. And if you can't do it on public transit, well, there's your answer. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I just did a panel with eight brand new CEOs at our Think Transit conference in Nashville about a month ago. They are under one year on the job and it's almost been become de rigueur now where They're all riding their service. They get it. The new CEOs are, a lot of them are car free or one car families, not two car families. Kevin Quinn, who I was just with in Vancouver, rides every single day to work. So yeah, I think it's it's required. And what's funny is, it's not just the CEOs. I got to be honest with you. When I got to the MTA in Baltimore, I was surprised that so many of our staff in HR, finance, IT, procurement, legal, PR, they never rode transit. So they're there, you know, supporting and making policy decisions. But again, they did never rode transit. They drove their car into work in the morning and they were, and they rode it home. And they maybe twice a year, they might ride the light rail to a Baltimore Orioles baseball game to say they rode, you know, that year. I think that uh, if you're in a senior leadership position, in any organization, you should be required to use the service that you're managing, that you're leading. It's a win-win again. It'll, it'll give you all kinds of insight into how we can make this better. I can't tell you how many great ideas I got from sitting with passengers and asking them, what do you think about our service? You know, That's why, to be honest with you, even in my tours now around the world, I think I visited, Ben, more public transit agencies than anyone else alive in the last five years. I don't know anybody who's visited more than 75 transit agencies. I think I'm even higher than that number now. I couldn't visit as many during the pandemic, obviously, but I always go into dispatch and I talk to the dispatchers. That's the core place of where everything's happening. How is it working for you? You know, if they're using our software, I ask them, how's it work for you? What else would you like to see? You know, those kind of things. So again, being part and and experiencing being close up as close as possible to the service that you're entrusted with, I think you're dead on, Ben. It's exactly what's what's needed. Well, what I loved even more in your book, though, was sometimes when it isn't just the transit execs that are going on public transit, but they're taking the yeah. uh, political the leaders with them. Yeah, they're taking the right. new mayor. And they're saying, come here at commuter clock. These are people who are not turning up at the town hall sessions in the middle of the working day and on the weekend when they're looking after kids, but turn up at workers going to work time and you get half an hour to sit there and chat to someone who they aren't the normal people you see who have deliberately turned up to complain about something. These are the people getting on with their lives and you find out about their lived reality and then you really figure out is it the stuff you read out in the headlines that is the reality of public transit or what's actually going on down here? And then it starts to strip away this idea that it's dirty and dangerous and then just starts to be, 
Oh, it's a bit inconvenient if it only comes once an hour. I get that the problem here is we don't need armed police. We actually just need another two buses an hour. <laughs> then suddenly good, people man. have yeah. opportunity. Suddenly people get to go to jobs and have more jobs and productivity. And it literally is just bringing people to that reality of it. And uh, Yeah, there was Noah I, Berger. He had that in the chat. His chapter is one of the best it, yeah. chapters in the book, man. Great, it great is. discussion. And he was talking about going zero fare. We did a debate with Noah at our Think Transit conference, a debate on zero fare versus fair enforcement. And it was great. I haven't seen a, an actual, like a political debate. I did it. And I had uh, Kate Matice, head of the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission, moderate it. So, you know, I think the bottom line there is it works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. The major transit agencies are headed toward a fiscal cliff here in the U.S. as their COVID relief funds run out. Major big transit agencies like New York City and others, they rely maybe 40 to 50 percent on fares. Mm. So there's no one coming up with those dollars. So if we go zero fare, they're going to go bankrupt and they're going to not be able to provide service. And so they can't do that. Fares can be modified, right, for low-income people, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And most transit agencies have that in place, programs in place. But really, the counter argument is we need to be investing in more transit, investing in more frequency, and you need money to do that. And that sometimes comes in through fares. So it was a good, healthy debate back and forth. I'd certainly say in terms of demand elasticity and getting more people on, frequency quality of service is going to drive stuff up much more than reducing price. And yes, we need low income programs. And there, there are so many better ways of doing that now, even lighter. So uh, yes, know, that's right. Using account based ticketing and other technologies yeah. to allow schools and work placement organizations to just put people on free fares who are in these programs and get them to places in the lightest way possible. I love one we had the other day where people who are on a program, whether it's an education program or a back to work, get free travel. But then if they don't attend the program, the pass gets paused. And because the travel pass was uh, driving so much of their social life and other mobility, they would then start attending again and their completion ah, rate on the course went up. And it's nice good. ways that it, it's not a free give, Right. It's compliance. It's empowerment, uh, you know. right? Yeah. It's empowering yeah. them to do the job or the school or whatever that they got it for. That's good. Interesting. One of the things we always ask our guests is for their pick of the industry boondoggle and underdog. The, the boondoggle, the, the, the white elephant that's sucking all the oxygen out of the room, everybody's talking about and putting loads of effort in, and it's just not delivering. Uh, what would you pick as your current boondoggle idea that you would wish would just like step back a few paces and just stay calm for a bit while we get on with doing real work? One of the things that I am a strong believer in is inner city rail. And inner city rail, of course, is you know transportation by rail between cities. Here in the U.S., we've seen some private companies like Brightline step up and do it in a great way. And they're not necessarily what's traditionally considered high speed, you know, 200, 300 miles per hour, but they're pretty fast, you know, 130, 140, 150 miles per hour. I used to run the fastest rail cars in America when I ran the Mark train. We were 135 miles per hour. That was our claim to fame. We never actually got up to that speed, but they could. But this government run sponsored high-speed rail that's been going on, been studied for years and years and years with billions of dollars going into it. I mean, I want there to be high-speed rail. It's done in places all over Europe and Japan. We've got to figure out a better way to do it here in the U.S. because what we're doing is not working very well right now. And we need high-speed rail in this country. What did Einstein say? You know, it's the definition of insanity to keep doing the same thing if it's not working. So I think we need to figure out a different approach. I don't know what it is personally. I've got some ideas on it, but 
that to me, spending billions and billions on studies, we need to get going and figure out yeah, a path I, to get there. I, I, I'm always shocked riding on the Acela, Boston to New York. And that does not need a bullet train. It needs maintenance on the tracks. That's and right. That's it. Maintenance yeah. on the tracks. You know, there, are, there right. are bridges where the rust treatment goes up to shoulder height, and that's it, yeah. because they're not paying to put the scaffold to do anything else. And the backlog of maintenance just to allow the existing rolling stock to achieve its capable speed is not done. And if you wanted to double the average speed of a seller, you don't need a new train set. You just need maintenance. What would your direction be if you if you were given a magic wand to to take one on high speed rail right now in the next five minutes? What would you do? I think there are trade offs that you have to make. There's a lot of environmental regulations, and then there's the need to clean up the environment by getting people off their cars and getting them into high speed rail. So I think we need to look at those trade offs. One way we could do it. So many studies are hung up on the regulations that are in place that are keeping them. I mean, for instance, Ben. When I got the job at MTA in 2015 as CEO, we had 20 some million dollars. We were studying high-speed rail between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. It's going to be a 15-minute ride. Now it's seven years later. Guess where it's at? They're still studying. I think it takes leadership from the very top to say, this is what we're going to do. It's not just going to be throwing money at it. We need to figure out what the stoppages are, right? And direct our attention to figuring out where there are conflicts between regulations and our ability to move forward. Okay. And your underdog. So if we could take all the money and effort that's going yes. in the wrong place, where do you think there's a new idea or technology that should have its time in the sun that we should all be doing a bit more of? I have the perfect one. Hydrogen powered battery electric buses. So much of our emphasis on zero emission vehicles has been on battery electric buses, which take power from the grid. A new trend in the US and Canada and other places is hydrogen power. Only water comes out of the tailpipe. It's still zero emission, but it has longer range, generally 300 miles versus maybe 150 to 200 miles on battery electric. You can produce it on site like they do at Sunline Transit where they have their own factory, or you can have it brought in by a trucker and dumped in the ground. It's having its moment in the sun right now in the spring of 2023. So many transit aides. I just had Doran Barnes, the CEO of Foothill Transit, at an event and on our podcast talking. He's got the biggest hydrogen fleet in America. Other folks are studying it and are implementing it. And so I think we need an all of the above approach to get to our end goal of, of environmental stewardship. And this is one where the attention needs to be right now. Good picks, Paul. You have another book coming out, don't you, Paul? <laughs> yes. And there are some voices in there we should listen to. Basically, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier on the TV show, we dive into the food, the culture, and the transit of a city. Foodies and the foodie culture has become really big, especially during the pandemic, to be honest with you. And now that people are out visiting places and they, they've learned to cook more at home. So this is... A fun look at public transit executives around the world, Australia, Europe, Asia, and the Americas, who each have given, as I mentioned, I visited all these cities and a buddy of mine is on the podcast, Mike Bismeyer, who worked for a battery electric bus company, <laughs> suggested to me, hey, Paul, you visit all these cities and you've eaten at all these great restaurants. You want to have a cookbook of your favorite recipes? And I said, I got a better idea. I'll take it one, one higher than that. I'll ask the CEOs of the transit systems there in those cities to give me their favorite original recipe that represents their region. So, you know, 
you've got folks like Simon Reed, the head of technology at TFL, giving me British pasties. It's got his mom making them. So we've got pictures of them or their mom in their kitchen making this and a little story behind it. Or Scotch Eggs, uh, a friend of mine from London, talks about his boat tour down the coast of England and going into a great harbor during a storm and getting the best Scotch eggs of his life and those kind of fun stories. And so the book is out now. It's called Comfort Food, a public transportation celebrity cookbook, something (laughs) unique and totally different, but that shows the other side of our leaders. And that's kind of what I spend a lot of my time doing, Ben, as you know, is identifying up and coming leaders and existing leaders in the transit industry and shining a light on them to show who they are. So many times they only get to really be on the news or get seen when there's bad news, right? Or there's a derailment or a bus strike or whatever. I want to give them the opportunity to shine and talk about the good news stories on the podcast, on the TV show, and even through other fun little projects like Comfort Food, where they get the show. And a lot of it is related to transit, you know? So Melinda Metzger, who's the head of Pace Suburban Bus in Chicago, has a a recipe that she shares with bus drivers, those kind of things. And so there's a connection in a lot of the stories as well to our industry. But it's a fun new book that is available on Amazon, as are all my other books. Okay, well, I've got to give you 10 out of 10 for the puns in the title. Comfort food. (laughs) There we go. Thank you so much for coming on uh, this month, Paul. It's uh, a real honor to have you on our show. And, And really amazing the spotlight that you put on our industry and the people that work in the industry both on your your podcast and transit unplugged tv just fantastic to see that 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 now going so far thank you so much and uh look forward to seeing you in person at the next trade show absolutely well it was great to be on with someone who is as knowledgeable of the industry as you are who could ask intricate questions and elicit good responses like that. So it's a joy. Thank you. Wow, what a completely packed episode this month. Thank you, Paul, for coming on and giving us so many great stories and great ideas. I particularly like the summary on fair free transit. We need more buses per hour rather than more police on the bus. I also really like the fact that both for CEOs and politicians, it's becoming more traditional to just get on public transit and understand the reality rather than imagining what public transit really wants. To get more content like this, do subscribe to Transit Voices to make sure you don't miss another episode in the future. And for even more from Paul Comfort, do get his book, Conversations on Equity and Transit. It is an absolute must read. So see you all next month for more Transit Voices. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.